Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to May's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. Coming up, we've got an interview with Ken Hoffman from the McKinsey team who've just published a fascinating teardown report on batteries, which has important takeaways for the direction of the industry. Ken was previously Global Head of Metals and Mining Research at Bloomberg Intelligence and is a well-known and well-respected voice in the industry. Before that, I'd like to welcome my co-host, Cormac O'Lara. Cormac is MD of Electrios Energy and an expert on the Chinese battery industry. Welcome, Cormac. Hi, Matt. Great to talk to you again. It's been a while since uh, we last spoke, but a lot of things have happened in the industry. I'm sure you want to get into it, really. Brilliant, brilliant. Let's kick off. As you say, it's been uh, quite a, a big month for news flow. So um, what do you think is the key aspects from China? Again, it's, you know, it's the growth of the LFP market. It's the high cost of raw materials, even though I think in April there was more of a balance. There wasn't, uh, especially for lithium carbonate, didn't really increase in price that much. I think it slightly decreased over April, actually. But then we see LFPF6 for electrolytes, you know, that's in, in short, it's also in shortage and the prices have spiked at almost 210,000 uh, RMB per ton, which is... And you know, I hear that's that there's actually 70, a shortage 000. of the chemicals that are used to make that. Is that the case? They're made from lithium chemicals also, so... To, oh, no, I uh, talk about the organic chemicals that are, I think, oh, yeah, vinyl carbonate right. or something. Well, that, yeah, I was just talking about the salt. But yeah, yeah the electrolyte, there's a shortage of vinyl carbonate. I believe there's not a shortage of DMC, but dimethyl carbonate. But I've heard other commentators say there's a shortage. But uh, yeah, I think there's a, the electrolyte uh, manufacturers have been investing heavily, increasing uh, production to ramp up the carbonate manufacturing, same as every other part of the industry to doubling their capacity in the next two to three years. So um, the investments are being, would be made in that sector. But yeah, right now, a lot of the raw materials, is, uh, they're very expensive and in short supply. It sort of sounds to me very much like pretty much what we're used to hearing in the battery space, that there's a lot of investment going into certain parts of the value chain, but other parts of the value chain are being neglected. So obviously there's, there's investment going into LFP battery capacity, but there isn't enough investment going into raw material capacity needed to make up that value chain? Well, you know, I'm just going over my notes earlier. There's, there's been 22 battery production manufacturing plants announced during 2021 so far uh, in China. That's uh, 350 gigawatts announced. And that's just like, it's about 160 billion yuan RMB investment, but I think what is that, 40 is about 20 billion USD thereabouts. So. But a lot of these projects, the ground has actually been broken, which is slightly different to what we're seeing in Europe. But you got to wonder where the capacity is. If you're not even worried about the raw materials from the mining sector, you still got to think about where the uh, lithium chemicals are coming from and the, the cobalt yeah. chemicals and the nickel chemicals, because the factories to produce these chemicals are very slow off the gates compared to uh, out of the gates. You'll see in Europe, for example, uh, Johnson Matthey, BSF, Umicore, you know, they've announced maybe... Uh, Johnson Matthey, two factories, Umicore, one factory in Europe, I mean, and BSF with a precursor and the cathode factory. So, and they're only about 30,000 tons a year at best. It's probably uh, slightly less. That's pales in comparison to the uh, EV manufacturing uh, announcement. So, yeah. again, yeah. it's the same story. All, a lot all through of, the value chain and globally, yeah. there's a complete lack of understanding of the need for raw materials and intermediate materials, as, as you point out. I mean, you know, cathode active materials, anode active materials are just a, a complete underinvestment. Yeah, and they're all heavy investments. So they're depending on your capacity, anywhere from uh, 500 million to over a billion for a greenfield project, especially in Europe. And as we know, with um, permitting and uh, environmental concerns, it's very difficult to set up one of these factories in prime auto manufacturing areas. You know, it's mm -hmm. another, we've seen even some of the Chinese electrolyte manufacturers having difficulty with uh, public concerns in setting up uh, electrolyte factories in Poland. So uh, it's been pushed back already. And we see uh, the amount of pushback Tesla's got at every step uh, producing Giga Factory Berlin also has been. So it's more widespread than that. I mean, there's a number of mining projects in Europe that are stuck in red tape at the moment. And I think, you know, right. you, you look at it and you, you genuinely... I was very bullish on Europe two years ago and up to a year ago, but now I genuinely 
believe that Europe's going to have to bring in its raw materials for the EV story from elsewhere. Now, that might not necessarily be from China. It could be from around the Atlantic Basin, from eastern US, eastern Canada, maybe Africa, Brazil. But the more I see of it, the less likely I think that Europe is ever going to approve of having an active mining industry on the scale that's necessary within Europe, not unless something fundamental changes. And, and we're just not seeing that at the country level. We're seeing positive views at the European Union level, but it's not filtering down to the country level in terms of planning processes, etc. So yeah, I think it's going to be possible perhaps to build the chemical plants in Europe. It's certainly possible to build the cell plants and the EV plants, but increasingly it looks less likely unless something fundamentally changes in Europe that we'll actually see mines, large amounts of mining in Europe, which is going to impact the environmental friendliness of, of the electric vehicle story, quite frankly. Yeah, there's no getting around it. You, do you ever think Europe so will be 100% sufficient on EV materials from the rare earth elements right down to aluminum, copper, everything? Europe could be self-sufficient, I think, on the active material side. Manganese, nickel, lithium, graphite. Europe has its own resources. Copper, probably not so much. I think, you know, they'd still need to potentially import copper from, from elsewhere, although there is a fair amount of copper in the Nordic region. But I think that they don't have a lot of raw materials, but they, they could have made a, a reasonable fist of, of self-supplying on the electric vehicle active material side. Anyway, moving away from my soapbox on, on Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Just to, to talk a little bit more about China and the LFP, because we obviously did see quite a big move over the last couple of months. And, and looking at some of the data, it looks like LFP cathode output has gone above ternary cathode output for the first time in quite a while, which is evidence, if we ever needed any, that the LFP chemistry is, is really taking off in China. That's for um, March? Yeah, that's the March data. Well, uh, yeah, they're very close, you know, it depends on the data you read, but it's at least 50-50, if not closer. I mean, <laughs> it's at least 50-50. I've got slightly different data. Depends what you're reporting. Installation, some Chinese outlets report install capacity, some uh, site produce capacity and uh, our sales. So there's a, it depends what, you, what, what you're reading, but I usually monitor the sales and the sales is about, so it's like 48-50. So... Right. But, but very close. Yeah. I mean, I think the point yeah, yeah. that I'm making is that the LFP chemistry is making a real, real comeback. I mean, it's storming back into the market very, very strongly over the last sort of 12 to 14 months or so. Yeah, we just, yeah, we saw it arrive with the announcement of cell to chassis capacity, which was the CATL and, and BYD uh, announcements. And it hasn't really, and it's, it also coincided with the subsidies being uh, adjusted and uh, withdrawn so there was no incentive to go towards the you know they're being reinstated again but uh, there was no incentive to go to the higher energy oxide layer type materials and um so yeah lfp has been on a run ever since then there's new installation capacity going in dynatonic has announced 150,000 lfp capacity plant in yunnan province for example so that's uh, cathode huge, capacity right? i assume yeah yes cathode yeah lfp eve have another jv uh with a Dynatonic again, and Chinese uh, LFP manufacturer for another 100,000 in a different, uh, in Kunjing province, $2 billion investment, our RMB investment. So uh, they're, you know, they're huge, 100, that's 250,000 uh, per uh, tons of LFP per annum coming in here, just in, these, in the domestic market in China. And I mean, but, it's interesting uh, to look at the sort of top 20 EV sales in, in China. And I think probably at least 50% of them are LFP batteries, including the, the market leader, which I'm not going to attempt to pronounce again, but which looks like being the Hongguang um, Mini EV, which looks like being probably the first mass market EV. Would, would you agree? You should just call it by its first name, Wu Ling, I think <laughs> it might be easier than Hongguang. Yeah, this is micro EV market is going to be huge. That's for sure. I think you addressed it in the your monthly report, um, how you think there'll be an appetite for micro-EVs in Europe. Questionable whether they'll be acceptable in the West Coast of the US, but uh, there's a number of other car companies all introducing these micro-EVs. So it'll be some competition for the Wuling. 
But the Wuling uh, uh, you know, has three or four different, op- uh, at least three options, depending on how much you want to pay, how much range you want, and, um, and the size of the, uh, the actual Minivi itself. So it's a whole new market, really. You know, we've had these cars before, the smart cars in Europe, to great business in Germany, for example. So I think this micro EV, this is you, it was in your report, but this is the first economical for everybody mass produced EV. It was on your yeah. report or so? I'm suggesting that, that yes, it, it, it could be. It could be. But uh, I, I but guess it, it is at the moment. We won't yeah. know for what, six months, six to 12 months or so, whether it, whether it ends up being. But certainly, given that it's the top seller in China for what the last six or seven months almost since it was was released and materially trumping for instance the tesla model 3 certainly the signs are positive that it that it could in fact be the first mass market ev yeah could set the the mold for others to follow but yeah. you know it's a particular car that might be suitable to a certain type of person it wouldn't suit uh, i wouldn't be too enthusiastic about it myself but uh, well i think it it works if you are you live in a city and you're commuting in a city. I think if you ever have to drive outside the city, it's not an ideal product. But I think if you're only driving inside the city and, you know, trying to fit into small parking spaces and and things like that, it probably works as a a product. It is working, uh, evidently. I'm not sure what city it's doing its highest sales in, though. I haven't been to China, obviously, since the pandemic, but I'd imagine to see a lot of them around Shanghai and uh, Shenzhen. None in Hong Kong, then, I assume. Uh, there's cool no enough for Hong Kong. Chinese electric vehicles in Hong Kong at the moment. Not even uh, made in China Tesla. Really? Okay. 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 So I, th- I think talking about the Wuling sort of uh, feeds in quite nicely to the IEA report that came out this month and in April rather. And what what really sort of came to the fore for me about the IEA report is that once again they seem to be lowballing their EVO forecast. So yeah, fine. They they raise their their EV forecasts, big news and everything. But at the end of the day, for me, they're still pretty conservative on their EV on their base case EV forecasts. And I think this has been a thing for the IEA all along. Maybe you shouldn't expect big things given how it is financed and that it is financed by a number of hydrocarbon companies. But uh, they have been very very conservative on the forecast for EVs over time. Well, when they used to have the 30 million at 30, right? EV 30 at 30. And then, so was that 30 million at 2030? I forget which way they had that uh, set up. Mm. They've driven up past that, but uh, it's not as bullish as, uh, I used to rely a lot on IEA in the early days, but uh, I kind of lean towards BNF's number now. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I used to use, I think the IEA is very good for what it's good at, but I don't, really rely on its uh, EV numbers. They're pretty out of the money for, for me. What's the new number they posted? 145 million and by 2030? That's uh, materially below what I've got. I mean, uh, I've got uh, 195 million in 2030. So you can see how how far out of the money I think that is. Is that counting uh, all this uh, new factory announcements by the Volkswagen? And, uh, you know, when was this, this report was... Only came Just out after Volkswagen. So it's, yeah, not, so. Um, it's a modern report. So, yeah, you sort of take it with a little bit of a pinch of salt, I think. Moving on. So, a couple of elements of quite a lot of interest to uh, natural resource investors. Uh, first of all, Lijin Mining, which is a Chinese company, has started trial production at its high pressure acid leach facility in Indonesia. Now, this is pretty much the first of the HPOW projects in nickel to start up. And obviously, all eyes are going to be on the startup of this project, because if these high-pressure asset leach projects in Indonesia are successful, it potentially changes the situation in the nickel market quite considerably. Now, just to give you a little bit of background, HPOW high-pressure asset leach projects are based on laterite nickel. And historically, they haven't been that successful, i.e. they've never hit capacity and they've cost a lot more and and taken a lot more time to get to production. So that's why the industry has been a little bit wary about that new capacity. And it will be very interesting to see if they're successful in getting close to their targeted capacity and indeed whether the other HPOW projects that have been announced are, are successful. 
If they're not, I would suggest we still have a material shortage of nickel. And even if they are, I would suggest we potentially still have a material shortage of nickel. So a lot of fuss about these projects, but at the end of the day, successful or not, we probably still have a material shortage of nickel. Well, yeah, it seems like a lot of people are waiting on the fence, right? Nickel prices have been relatively flat for the last month or so. Uh, they started picking up in the last few weeks or so. And whether that's down to, you know, nickel specific issues or just the reflation trade on a macro level, we don't really have a lot of visibility. Uh, certainly there doesn't seem to have been a, a material move in nickel inventories, but they've certainly can come back to the sort of level they were at before the Singshan news came out um, a couple of months ago. Yeah, well, it'd be nice to see. It would be nice if HPAL could alleviate some of these uh, nickel concerns, right? If we I'm sort of on the fence about this. Yeah. I mean, as, as somebody that's uh, sort of involved in the battery space, it would be great if uh, these HPALs were successful and that we had enough nickel to supply the battery space. If as a, someone with a mining background, <laughs> I'm kind of hoping that they don't, they aren't successful and that we'll have, you know, higher prices and incentivize new capacity through the rest of the system. But we'll, we'll have to wait yeah. and see. Well, yeah, if you're a battery EV, you want to electrify the world, then you're rooting for HPAL. But will the detailing uh, still be a problem? Like what is the, what's the work around detailing issue? So it's mixed. The Indonesians have come out and said no offshore tailing stumping, which is positive. So a number yeah. of these projects now have to work to look to dry stack their tailings onshore, which is quite a substantial change for a lot of these projects. So we, we wait to see. Certainly, there have been delays because of these, these changes. I mean, if you think about the grade of most of these projects, I mean, they're one, around about 1% nickel. So you're talking about you know 99% of what you dig up is waste. So yeah, I think the tailings disposal is going to be a, a key thing going forward and is likely to cause some delays. But um, luckily, yeah. I, mean, I think that the take-up of, of LFP in the near yeah. term has actually taken away a little bit of the nickel demand growth that we're expecting to see. So from that side of things, we've, we've got a little bit more time for these projects to come through. But how about with the NPI? Is NPI and HPILOT going to be competing? Is it going to be one winner? Or would they, if both are successful on, the, on their uh, production routes, will there be a world where it be both HPILOT and NPI uh, nickel source? It's a good question, actually. And I mean, the easy answer is, is I don't know. I think if you go the NPI route, then the operating costs are substantially higher. But obviously, your capital costs, your capital intensity is lower. Whereas if you go the H power route, your, your capital cost could be very, very high. Your capital intensity is very high, but your probably yeah. your operating costs are lower. So it, it's a difficult trade-off. If NPI is successful and a lot of experts in the industry, including me, still have material doubts about whether that NPI to match to nickel sulfate route is going to be successful. Given the ability to raise capital in China, I would suggest that the NPI route is going to be the chosen route because you can chuck in loads and loads of plants for not very much money. But jury's still out on that one. Just the jury's out on the end product, right? Jury's still out on the end product, yeah. And obviously, we have to see. So on, on both end products, really, we have to see whether the, the HPAL plants can come up to capacity as planned, whether they've got the processing issues sorted out. And then we also have to see whether true battery-grade nickel sulfate can be produced using the nickel pig iron route, with the big risk being iron you know specs for iron in battery grade nickel sulfate are probably what 10 parts per million and if you're producing it from an iron a nickel pig iron precursor you've got to worry about how much iron they're going to be able to take out and you know not not so much how much you can get out from a chemical perspective but how much you can get out from an economic perspective i.e it's economically yeah. feasible to remove all of that iron to produce the product yeah, you probably could technically and chemically remove all the iron, but at what cost? Yeah, so that's the issue. So moving on 
elsewhere in the raw material space. And I think one of the, the big thing that came out in April from the first quarter reporting was that the spodumene concentrate industry in Australia is absolutely flat out at the moment. So really strong production. But I think what has surprised the market, particularly in China, is how slowly these producers are moving to ramp up capacity. So you talked about sort of market specialists suggesting that it would only take three to six months to ramp up new spodumene concentrate capacity at the beginning of the year, but we're not seeing that. I mean, realistically, it would be before the, maybe by the end of the year before we see new capacity coming on. So that would be the the restart of the Altura operation that's now part of Pilbara Minerals, and also the restart of the Wajina mine, which is owned by Mineral Deposits. Sorry, I wasn't that wrong. Mineral Resources. (laughs) Mineral Resources. And uh, Mineral Deposits was an old um, heavy minerals project in Africa. So it's going to be a very interesting one, but certainly very clearly those restarts are not coming in as quickly as the market was expecting. And obviously, in an environment where, you know, inventories for that material very, very low, both in mines and in China, you only see prices going in one direction, I think. Yeah, it's supposed to the prices have been going one direction. I see this uh, this uh, the uh, spodium contract grade six and, and five plus. Is this the five plus six? I mean, five point six. Yeah. So I mean, there's, there's SC six, which is obviously the benchmark grade, but increasingly we're hearing now it's about lithium units rather than necessarily grade. So these converters are gagging for for units, so they're happier yeah. to take lower quality material now. And it obviously does raise the possibility that we might see a return of, of sort of direct shipping all as these oh, converters yeah. really gasping for, for anything, really. It's heading down six to five point six. Uh, and next step is ore. Wow. Yeah. How much is the ore selling uh, per ton? I mean, it, it hasn't shipped yet in this cycle, but it did ship in the previous cycle. And we're being guided that you maybe wouldn't get a material premium for 6% material, you, you, you know, it would be like a sliding scale. So right. if you're is shipping for sort of 1.5%, 5%, you yeah. be on a sliding scale. So it'd be quite interesting to see whether that doesn't in fact happen or whether the converters will just have to wait to get product off the, uh, off the miners. How long can these guys wait if they're running out of inventory? So, <laughs> that is so. the question. I mean, that really is the question. But given that there's realistically only what three three miners in australia at the moment green bushes yeah. pilgangora and mount catlin it very much is an an oligopoly at the moment so um yeah it's going to be difficult for the converters particularly the converters that are relying on the spot market and don't have don't have offtake agreements tied up i've been hearing from the chinese that that uh, they're going to be reviewing their spot market uh, strategies towards uh, in the future and the near future towards securing long-term contracts with international suppliers at least because just the market went crazy the last six months or so yeah and they have no inventory and they're holding out for prices it's a bit of a bit of a game i mean i think that there is a definite feeling particularly among traders and producers that they want the converters to pay up because obviously there were a number of incidences in the down markets where converters actually defaulted on contracts and left the miners very high and dry in some cases. So, you know, it's all very well for the Chinese government to come in and say, look, you know, we, we're going to, to reorganize these contracts. But at the end of the day, that, that requires you as the buyer to honor contracts in the down market, as yeah. well as expect to receive fair treatment in the up market. So I think that's something that perhaps converters need to need to think about that uh, you know if they they want to enjoy proper treatment in the up market then they need to treat their business partners correctly in the down market and i think that's, yeah, that's true, that yeah. the uh, that the mining industry is quite keen on making i'm not sure it will be received but all right <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah okay i think that's uh, a uh, useful place to stop yeah. and uh, perhaps we will resume this uh, next month 
thank you very much to Cormac for, for your time and uh, we'll speak again next month. Talk to you next month. All the okay. best. Cheers. Bye-bye. And moving on to our interview now. In my view, one of the most interesting pieces of research to come out of the battery space in some time was the battery teardown report carried out by McKinsey on a number of different EV batteries. If you haven't read the report, which is entitled Building Better Batteries, Insights on Chemistry and Design from China, an executive summary is available from the McKinsey website, and I would heartily recommend downloading it. So I'm delighted today to welcome Ken Hoffman, who's an expert in McKinsey's Basic Materials Institute, to talk about some of the findings of the report. Prior to McKinsey, Ken was Global Head of Metals and Mining Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. Welcome today, Ken. Thanks for having me, Matt. So um, the report was fascinating, by the way, and, and easily one of the best things I've read this year. In the report, you split the conclusions up between cell chemistry, cell design, and battery pack design. Maybe we could kick off and talk a little bit about cell chemistry. And just to start, there was a range of chemistries in the batteries that you tore down from NCM 523, 622, 811, and also LFP. Can you talk a little bit about the cost of raw materials in the 811 cell being less than in the 523? but also manufacturers charging a higher price premium over the raw material cost in the 811 cell. And what's that sort of premium made up of? How much of that would be profit and how much of it would be other manufacturing costs? Sure. And to step back just a little bit, you know, one, one of the things we've done at McKinsey is we've really tried to see where does the consumer want to go with the EVs and then how will companies try to address those needs? And Every two years, we survey over 15,000 consumers globally, be it Europe, the United States, Asia. We actually, uh, as part of this project, we were looking at chat rooms around the world to sort of see how consumers who bought or wouldn't buy an EV, what they think about EVs. And what's very interesting is, uh, first off, number one is always range. Any customer in the world says range. Uh, number two is recharge time. Any customer says recharge time. And then cost is number three. Safety actually is is not in the top five. So going from that standpoint, car manufacturers know, first of all, if I'm a consumer, I pretty much want to have the same attributes of my internal combustion engine. And if that's true, you know, how do I actually adjust to that? And that has been sort of the trend we've seen in cell design over the past few years. Now, the, the big question has been, you know, how quickly could we get to various designs. And, and obviously, you know, the first push has been in the cathodactic material to try to get as high nickel as possible. Obviously, the higher nickel content that you have, typically the better the range you will get. And so you've seen that movement was, was very interesting in this study was, you know, we were looking at 2019, early 2019 vehicles, late 2018, early 2019 vehicles. And we were really surprised to already see on the marketplace some 811 chemistries. And, and that is something, you know, if you would have asked us in 2016 or early 2017, when we would see 811s, then that goes to, you know, we would have said, oh, 2024, 2025. And so when we actually went down to the cell levels and saw two of our, our the models that we tore down to have those 811s, it was really, really interesting to us. And, and in terms of, you know, when we start to talk about cost, it's all going to come down to what is the energy density of those cells? How well constructed are those cells? And, you know, how much material could they put into the cell pack? And then how that works out uh, on the back end in terms of, of your materials. Now, it all depends where you are in the cost cycle. Typically, cobalt is far more expensive than nickel. So the more cobalt you can take out and the more nickel you can put in, you get a, a double advantage. One, uh, cobalt's traditionally far higher price, usually two to three times higher the price of nickel. And two, it doesn't really help out that much in terms of, of your energy density. So you're, you're getting a more dense, less cost material. And that's why the 811s will give you a better cost performance measure than, a, a, say, a 532. Okay. In terms of the sort of premium above the raw material price, what goes into that premium? What's that made up of? A lot of it, when, when you go back, and we've done a lot of research on, on, you know, again, assuming that, you know, your consumer wants range and recharge time, that the automakers for every, say, 1% increase in the range that you get, you generally get to charge 1% more for that battery. By getting a, a more energy-dense material out of your vehicle, you can actually charge more for that material. And that's why 
the positive you will get is you can charge more for an 811 because of its performance dynamics. The negative you get is because 811, particularly in this time frame, whenever you move from one chemistry to another chemistry up, up the line, you typically get a very high yield loss. So when I move from a 532 to a 622 to a 83 or an 811 to a 90505, every time you make one of those moves, you can have yield losses of up to 30%. And so you're going to charge significantly more for that, for that raw material. However, on the other hand, the cell makers, and, and if you look at the profitability of cell makers globally, they aren't. Very few cell makers have made any money. The only one to consistently make money is CATL, which has consistently made an LFP product for many, many years. And so therefore, they're, they have a very low yield loss. But if you look at most of the other uh, cell makers around the world, They've struggled to make profits, and that's just because as they've, the technology has moved and car makers are pushing for more and more range and, 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 and really what's the next technology, they're constantly in this uh, catching up loop uh, on yield loss. By yield loss, are we talking about here the number of faulty cells? That's right. Yes, that's right. So you're usually, we're, we're seeing when, when we've started to do a lot of chats with cell manufacturers, that's what they're telling us, that up to 30% in the first 12 to 18 months yield loss. It's actually, you know, if you look at recycled material for from this industry, the bulk of the recycled material from this industry comes from bad cells oh, at oh, the oh, cell plant. Yeah, okay. okay, so that's really interesting. So as you said, LFP came out really on top in the analysis in terms of quite low, well, I suppose if you're a consumer, in terms of quite low raw material costs and quite low premium charged on it. In terms of the raw material prices, did you use the raw material prices that exist now in the market or the raw material prices that were in place in sort of 18, 19 when these sales were from? We used the raw material price, I believe, at the time we wrote the report. And so that was, again, this report, I think it takes a long time for one of our reports to come through. So we're probably using prices late 2019, early 2020. That wasn't, it wasn't really, you know, sort of peak COBOL prices uh, baked into it. But even if you were to look at today's current prices, where I'm looking at today, $18,000 nickel, $50,000 cobalt, and lithium, you know, at around $14,000 for both hydroxide and carbonate, even at those prices, LFP does have an advantage. And if you look at the strategies of the automotive makers, it's quite interesting. They all seem to have the same strategy, which is to have a a low cost but low range LFP offering that they're that they're going looking for and that will be good for smaller cars entry markets not going to give you the best range but it will be an inexpensive vehicle and then you'll have sort of your high nickel content vehicles and then a lot of companies are trying to push for more manganese because the if you look at what automakers are most afraid of in the raw material area it's nickel they're they're very very worried about nickel that's the that's the one metal they can't seem to work out as having enough, you know, when we start to get to 30, 40, 50 million vehicles. So they're giving themselves that optionality. I think that's very interesting. And I guess the next question is, where does enough high purity manganese come from to supply? Uh... Well, you can look about it this way. There's about a million and a half tons of what we call class one nickel that's readily available to go into the battery industry. There is class two nickel, which for a very bad environmental footprint and for quite a bit of, of chemicals being added and Etc. You can, you know, class two could be turned into class one, but we, we, you know, that's not that's not optimal. The manganese market is about 25 million metric tons, so you're looking at a market that's that's 30 to 35 times larger than the nickel market. So there's plenty okay, of manganese. So, so I'm gonna, I'm it's gonna it's gonna quite diverse around the world. I'm, I'm going to stop yeah. you there, but I mean, I think the big issue there with the manganese market is that's the commodity manganese market, not the high purity manganese market, which is about you're true. 0. You're, yeah, that's zero point one five percent of that market. <laughs> <laughs> so it's true, but, but I mean, yeah. I think look, the the entire battery chain, one of the Things, you know, and it's the one thing we hear about lithium as well, as well as nickel. And if you want to be Tesla and you want to use a nickel powder, you're right. Today, there isn't a lot of pure nickel powder in the marketplace. In lithium, we don't see a problem with lithium. There's plenty of lithium in the world. It's the right product that needs to be produced. And so a lot of the bottleneck around raw materials for the battery is actually in the refining stage, uh, not really in the mining stage. And so that's the one area we sort of tell people, the world has plenty of raw materials for this, but it's going to be that refining stage. And we look at, say, look at you know the United States, there, there's limited lithium uh, production capability here. There's no nickel refineries in the United States. There are some in Canada. 
you know, when we start, there's there's almost no rare earths uh, in North America being, uh, you know, particularly to the magnet level being produced. So there, there's a there's a huge bottleneck in that refining stage. But I think that's easier to fix than the earth doesn't have enough of those materials at all. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair point. I think the other problem that, that I think the auto industry struggles with is timing, that we just, you know, it takes three to five years to, to build a new mine. And if we don't get cracking in financing these projects soon, then you are going to have a near-term supply-demand imbalance, which is going to take a, a while to fill. And while it takes a while to fill, prices are going to go up quite considerably. That's 100% right. And it's interesting, you know, and I, I wear several hats and I talk up and down the value chain all day long. And I, and I, I talk to both the mining industry. I do a lot of projects with the mining industry, but I also do a lot of projects with the automotive industry. And you talk to two completely different worlds. The, yeah. the story you just gave that the world doesn't have enough materials and it really needs to ramp up. We think nickel, you know, this year you may need close to 300,000 metric tons of nickel uh, of the one and a half million tons of class one this year. And that number is only expanding rapidly. You go to the mining companies and they're like, look, the nickel price is 18,000. We don't really make any money or it doesn't make sense for us to invest unless it's well over 20,000. And we just don't see this because come on, you know, is, is this really going to happen? Are we really going to see this? And I do think they're starting to change, you know, like the, their, their attitudes and starting, you saw Norilsk announcement of a big expansion in, in Europe, but still, I, I think you're right. If there's going to be a problem here, it's trying to, to marry those two worlds, which is why the automakers are giving themselves so much options. So they're saying, okay, guys, let's assume that the nickel industry isn't able to keep, you know, to keep up here. What else can we do? And that gives a great opportunity for a chemistry like LFP, particularly, and as we did these teardowns, you could see this, they were finding ways to do cell to pack, to take out as much of the packaging as possible, to take down the cooling needs, et cetera, to try to put as many chemicals into the car to give that range enhancement going forward. And, and that's been a huge part of the cost reduction is as the automakers are actually getting used to making these vehicles, they're getting far, far better at making these vehicles and that's dropping the cost. Okay. And I suppose that comes on to sort of the next area. And I just want to talk a little bit about cell and pack design as comes out of your report, because one of the points that you make is that moving from ternary batteries to LFP allows the use of more flammable materials, which are lighter like aluminum and plastic. And what does the impact, what is the impact of that really on the, on the battery density? Uh, so, sorry, on the energy density on a pack, pack basis? So what are you seeing out of that? Are the new LFP batteries going to be better on a, on a battery pack basis than perhaps the ternary batteries? Well, I don't know if it's going to be better, but it definitely will allow you to put sort of more chemicals into the same spots. And then, and as we go forward, and, and I think, you know, the blade technology we see roll out in China using an LFP chemistry is exactly that uh, capability where you're starting to see rather than 60% of the, uh, the cell pack area being, you know, chemicals, uh, you're starting to get that up to 80 or even more percent. If you look at uh, Tesla's ideas of actually putting the batteries as a structural component of the vehicles, it's this constant trend of how do I reduce the overall pack? How do I integrate these batteries into the car? And then how do I you know, add more chemicals so I can get better range? Now note, the cars that we tore down were before the most recent Chinese safety standards. We're not exactly sure if some of these vehicles would have passed those safety standards. But again, that's, that is some, they, they did pass the safety standards at the time they were produced. You know, as we start to see you know, more concern about the vehicles and we do see some some car fires, usually regulators react and the car industry is just going to have to react against that. But I still think at the end of the day, all of the automakers we're seeing and the Chinese are no exception are really moving really forward with how do they actually put more chemicals into the same space? How do they reduce pack? How do they, uh, you know, for example, the, uh, the tablet design that's being announced in the marketplace that allows a, both a faster charge and less energy uh, or less heat generation. So you're finding ways with these batteries as, you know, and remember, this isn't even a 10-year-old industry, really. As the industry yeah. becomes better and better at making these vehicles, that's the way they drive their cost out. And that's the way they're getting more of the product that, they're, that the consumer wants. I guess it, maybe if I just toss a quick question in there, just in, in terms of, of your thoughts, do you think that the improvements in manufacturing that we have seen in the last two years, we'll see over the next two to three years, 
are going to be enough to offset higher raw material costs. I mean, we've seen effectively a doubling of the lithium price. Graphite could go up. Nickel could go up from here. Do you think it's going to be enough to offset? It's going to be enough to more than offset. We actually do in our calculations and our battery cost model that we have, we actually have pretty significant increases in raw material prices, particularly nickel, to tell you the truth. But we do see, you know, manufacturing advances, density advances, new technology advances that cost will to continue to decline. And we think even without subsidies going forward, you're just going to see the the EV battery driven vehicle as the, the cost alternative. I think the important part is the next gen, which we're starting to see in uh, we've done an awful lot of due diligence on these new battery technologies, you know, when you start to talk about changes in the anode. Now, now of course, when we tore down these vehicles, we couldn't find even any silicon. It was just pure artificial graphite in all the batteries we tore down. But we will see, we believe, pretty significant advances in the anode. And since 40% of the weight of the cell generally is, is your anode, if you significantly take that down, obviously your energy density really explodes. Your ability to fast charge the cars explodes because you're bringing those electrons through the anode. All those things make a much better battery, but also should drive costs significantly lower. And that's very interesting. So 100% artificial graphite, no natural graphite. At least the batteries we tore down, that's, that's what we saw. Now, it doesn't mean that natural graphite isn't used in China. We know it is used in China. But the least the batteries we tore down were just artificial graphite. And the other thing, we could not find any silicon in the batteries. So we were a little bit surprised by that as well. Often we hear, you know, 3 to 6% silicon is being used in sort of top-end batteries. But we could not find that when we broke down the cells. Okay, that's interesting. So maybe if we talk a little bit more about cell design, uh, one of the aspects that came out of your report quite strongly, which I thought was fascinating, is about the thickness of the cathode active material and the anode active material layers. For the more effective materials, it seems that the thickness would be higher. What is the sort of direction of travel in that? And, and, and what are the implications for the sort of cost? Yeah, well, in terms of cathode material, you're seeing a big trend to trying to make thicker and thicker cathode material. Now, you still have the delicate balance of how does it impact uh, range versus power. And power is the one thing you can suffer with having a thicker and thicker cathode. Um, anode, you, you would like to have as thin as possible with still having the ability to fast charge. So there's sort of a, a triangular trick that all of these companies are trying to, to go after. But we are seeing that thicker cathode material as it can be. And again, with such a high yield loss, it's very tricky for these companies to, to, to even move this uh, even slightly more. But as they try to, to add to that energy density, that's one of the things that, the, you know, the, that they're attempting to do. But also remember that as you have thicker and thicker cathodes and anodes, that could significantly in, influence your power. And so you, know, you won't have those you know, zero to 60 and point whatever seconds that they're doing lately. So, so there's a number of trade-offs that these car makers are trying to do with the cell and at the same time try to manufacture these without a lot of yield loss. And to show you how much you know, things change, I was talking to a lithium producer who said that Roughly every three months, the technical specs on their lithium that they provide to cell manufacturers change. So it's really constant, constant tinkering and changing, even so much so. And this was an interesting comment from a CEO saying that they supplied a, a major cell maker, but there was a cheaper lithium provider elsewhere who met the specs exactly as them and as, as well regarded as them. And they were really surprised that, that three months later, the cell maker came back to them and said, we have to drop that person and come back to you. To which the CEO told me, well, we had to raise our prices quite a bit because we realized for some reason their lithium even meeting specs wasn't working for that cell chemistry because it was so delicate. Ours was. And so you're starting to see things you know, like parts per billion of, of uh, detriments being uh, included because there's, there's something about the, the difference that slight that will really impact the battery. So when we start to talk about thicker or thinner, there, there's many different uh, aspects of that. And one false move, and, and you're talking about huge yield losses and huge losses for the cell makers. I think this issue of purity in the products is something that uh, a lot of people coming into the market from outside don't really pick up on. And the issue that one lithium project is not necessarily fungible with another lithium project because there's a totally different chemical makeup. I think people struggle with, with that as a concept. Oh, very much so. I mean, I talk to miners all the time, and, and, and I really stress about 100 times in each meeting 
your commercial team is going to be just as important as your mining team, you know, because from, from miners' perspective, they produce a commodity. And as long as they produce it to a certain spec, someone will buy it. And one of the things we saw was by being integrated into the system, the lithium producers, for example, so we've just gone through a cycle with the lithium producers. We went from 8,000 to 28,000 to 8,000. And what we saw was the companies that had the most integration in the value chain, their margins held up far, far better than those who were low cost, but were merchant suppliers. And they saw their margins go from very high when it was 28,000 to massive losses when it went back down to 8,000. And part of that reason was, if I'm not integrated into the value chain, I have to sell it to someone who is integrated into the value chain. So I'll sell it to a, an extra refiner, say in China, and then that person will take that lithium, work with the cell maker to get the exact detriment level needed. But when the market is loose, they can choose from any of those merchant suppliers out there. And so the cost went down very, very low. You even saw some lithium producers at the bottom of the cycle selling their lithium for $3,000 a metric ton, which nobody can be profitable at that level. So that's why we always say, if you're going to get into this space, do not just say, hey, I'm going to produce lithium or I'm going to produce a nickel sulfate. You really need to have the, the OEM, who in the OEMs really seem like they want to control this raw material flow to get in, you know, into bed with them. Not only is it going to tell you what exactly raw materials they need today, but most importantly, what raw materials will I need in three years or five years or seven years to be ready for technical changes in the batteries? Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think, you know, when I talk to investors, I always talk about how it's very important that management teams have engaged with the client. They've allowed time for qualification of the product before they are expecting to go into production. Oh, yeah. You see that all the time. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the companies out there, they're, you know, you'll hear, oh, we can drop our material into the manufacturing process. And then we actually tell to the cell makers and the OEMs, you can't drop things in. You have to be qualified. And that can take several years. So, so it's, it's a process that, you know, sort of forces collaboration because if I'm a cell maker who's qualified and raw material stream is qualified, it's a lot easier for me to sell into that and joint venture with them so that they can quickly get me up to speed and qualified rather than I want to do something on my own. And then that entire value chain needs to be qualified. Okay. So quickly, just to go back and talk a little bit about pack design. In the report, you talked about the skateboard shape what sort of advantages does that give over other designs? And obviously, you talked a little bit about next generation pack design as well with regards to self chassis and, and everything else. What, what sort of advantage does that give the electric vehicle makers going forward? I think as, as companies are, are committed now to making EVs, they're committed to making an EV platform. And, and I think you saw in a number of the earlier phase cars, they were just taking the engines, the, the internal combustion engines out and then fitting the batteries into the same slots. It's very inefficient. There's a lot more wiring needed and it's just not the best way to, to make an EV. And so the, you know, skateboard is just really, I'm redesigning this as an EV. And, and obviously that, that's what some of the, you know, the, the best in class producers have done from the very beginning saying, I'm going to make an EV and it's going to be the best way an EV could be made. And the skateboard is just saying, this is the best and most efficient way to put the most battery capacity in at the most efficiency. And one of the things we've done in the teardown, most interestingly, is you've seen there used to be a, a, you know, a statement that there was four times as much copper in the batteries than an internal combustion engine. And that was true five years ago. However, if you start to see best in class today, you're starting to see you know, 1.2 and a half, 1.3 times copper in the best in class EVs. And that has just been a pure efficiency standard of the engineers, most of which are from the internal combustion engine part because they've shut most of those programs down, really starting to take a fine tooth, you know, tooth comb to this and saying, how do I actually make the EV the best I can from the ground up? And so it's reducing those wires. It's uh, thinner sheets of copper inside the, uh, inside the cells. There's all sorts of ways they've been able to take cost out. And this is, this is part of the reason we've seen those costs drive down consistently. So you're talking about, you know, what if the raw materials go up? Well, if I have as much copper as I did before, you know, even if the price of copper is up 30%, I'm still doing better because I have 50% less copper overall. Okay, that's fascinating. And I mean, you said earlier, you, you, you've told us about the sort of areas of the value chain you're talking to. What do you think are the biggest sort of misunderstandings at the different levels of the value chain between, for instance, the raw material producers, the battery producers, the electric vehicle makers? Where do you think the poor communication or the communication is worse? I think because this is all so new, and I think you're seeing companies making announcements 
you know, by 2030 or 2035, they want to be all EV. And then now they're trying to tell their organizations, you really need to shift very, very rapidly to do this. That puts the OEMs in sort of a, a poor spot to begin with. And then on the other end of the value chain, like I said, you have the, the mining companies who are used to making commodities. They are not used to making really specialty chemicals at the end of the day is, is what they're producing. And then in the middle, you have the cell makers and the cell makers are sort of wondering which technology they should put in their next plants. So that's just given a lot of miscommunication. So, so think about it from the OEM. They will look at any new battery technology out there. You'll often see battery companies come out saying, hey, we, we've qual- you know, we, we have our, our batteries into this OEM and that OEM. When you go to the OEMs, they're like, I have every single battery out there possible and I'm testing them like crazy because I just don't know which one is going to be, give me the best parameters. So with a technology change moving so, so rapidly, if you're not integrated, if you really don't know what those companies are going to do over the next two, three, four years, you could be supplying a product into a market that just doesn't exist. So for example, companies who just went full out on lithium carbonate four years ago thinking, hey, lithium's lithium, lithium carbonate, I'll I'll try to produce it as quickly as possible, not realizing that once you got into particularly the 811s and the 90505s, you have to use the lithium hydroxide, that that market would shift that way. One of the areas that we're probably um, much more constructive on longer term is lithium metal. We really have seen an awful lot of battery technologies that use lithium metal in the anode. And many of the lithium anode batteries are actually trying to use traditional uh, liquid electrolytes so that you could even use an LFP with a lithium metal anode, get far more density than even the best in class NCM batteries today at a very low cost. How is that going to work out? Should I back that or should I go over a solid state? And there's many different types of solid state chemistries as well. We're seeing LMO batteries pop up more and more. So how do I position myself in terms of a raw material supplier? And how do I position myself as an OEM figuring out which one of these battery technologies I like to use? And then you have, you know, the, the really fast movers, particularly the Chinese market and, you know, Tesla, who's moving at very, very fast speeds in terms of technology advancement. And in that conundrum, you can see why it's difficult for this value chain to really get settled. Okay, that was a fascinating insight. Ken Hoffman from McKinsey, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thanks for having me. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for May. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.